What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special repeat guest, Sim Lan. How are you, man? I'm doing uh, pretty amazing. How about you? I am doing wonderful as well. So I kind of, we, we were, last time I had you on, we talked about, um, we talked about a whole, whole gamut of different things. We talked about like a lot of the biohacking, but I kind of, I mean, you're the type of person that's just always diving deep and experimenting and seeing, you know, what what the society is saying about one thing and then kind of testing against it. So I'd love for you to just kind of take the reins and run loose with it, man. Like, what are some things that you're experimenting on yourself now? What, what are some things you're excited about? What are some things that you want to refute? Uh, I think uh, at the moment, my biggest focus has been a lot to do with uh, intermittent fasting and uh, combining it with uh, resistance training as well. Just to I, because the, one of the reasons is that although there are like a lot of these different biohacks and supplements and all those gimmicks you can mm -hmm. do uh, to promote your longevity or some, and health, I still I think think that the fundamentals are where you get most of the benefits and where you, where like most of the effects lie and uh, like fasting uh, as well as doing resistance training to build muscle. I feel like those things are really one of those easiest things everyone can do. And those things will actually have like the biggest effects for your general well-being and longevity. So um, you know the the benefits are also like a dual. You get dual benefits from both of them because fasting itself is like a really it it is like a stressor to the body and it is like a catabolic stressor which um, like uh, promotes certain aspects of tissue degradation, whether that be like burning your fat or uh, burning some of the other unwanted proteins and uh, unwanted muscle tissue in your body uh, while at the same time still having like some longevity boosting benefits mm -hmm. because of the because of the pathway called autophagy and uh, promoting some stem cells and all those good things for increasing lifespan and uh, health span and uh, that that's why like fasting itself is like a, it, 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 it's, it's, it may come off like some something that is unwanted or it has like negative connotations but it's still, it's very beneficial for the body. And uh, it's actually like, you want to be, you know, you want to be certain, to a certain extent, you want to be like slightly catabolic every once in a while, just so your body could clean house and uh, and uh, really heal itself from the inside out. And at the same time, you know, you, you, don't, you don't want to take it too far uh, because, you know, the body still functions best when it's out of balance. And uh, the, that's where like the aspect of resistance training comes into play as well. You want to build muscle and you want to maintain it and you don't want to lose it as you get older especially because it's like more difficult for you to build muscle as you age and uh, it comes with like a host of other issues a lot of the age related diseases are related to loss of muscle and losing losing some of the insulin sensitivity and uh, becoming more intolerant to metabolizing carbohydrates and and uh, generally like losing this sort of um, you know your bone density and everything related so I feel I feel like using both fasting and resistance training are like you optimize both ends of the spectrum, so to say. You optimize the catabolic side, and you optimize the uh, positive or the growing and anabolic side as well. You know, it's interesting because, like, uh, you know, for me coming from like a, a bodybuilding background, um, I don't view this this way now. But you know, prior to finding keto and kind of delving into that, you know, it was it was very negative to go more than you know, two hours without a meal, because if you didn't have protein, you know, every two hours, then your muscles were just, you know, breaking down and disappearing, um, which we all, we all know is obviously not the case now. Um, but it's interesting because even, even knowing what I know, like the, the term, uh, you know, catabolism and, and being in a state of, uh, you know, being catabolic is always viewed as a negative. And it's interesting to to kind of bridge the gap and say, yeah, you know, you might you might forego some muscle building, you might sacrifice some of that for a you know finite strategic period of time, but then if in doing that you clean house, as you say, and you know give yourself a better foundation, a clean slate that makes building muscle and being more anabolic more efficient going forward, it's a worthwhile trade off. And and most people don't view you know, dieting and building muscle and, and longevity in such a shade of gray, it's, it's typically viewed as like a black and white. But, you know, when you look at it in that shade of gray, that's, that's, that's where a lot of the benefits can come from, I think. Yeah, it's like, there are, there is, I feel like there is this idea that 
you can't optimize longevity and performance at the same time. So say, I would say that in their extremes, they probably won't uh, coincide with each other. Like an Olympic athlete probably doesn't you know, optimize longevity and that's not their goal. But for most people, they can still uh, live a healthy life, have adequate amounts of muscle, like be strong at the gym and uh, like s still get all of the other longevity boosting benefits from it. So they don't have to enclose themselves to a cave if they want to live longer or they don't, <laughs> they don't have to... Uh, sacrifice their kind of other longevity aspects by you know trying to build muscle and and such you can of course you can achieve both uh, to a certain extent and you just have to know like how to optimize it and again like i feel you know using resistance training and being clever with your nutrition is is really one of those key parts and you, you, in a sense of knowing uh, what kind of a lever am i pulling with my metabolism and my nutrition at that particular moment and what kind of a direction my body is going to head. That's where the kind of most, that's where I feel the most uh, focus has to be on. Because like you said, in the past, you were kind of afraid of going catabolic because you thought it was like bad for you. And I feel like in the mainstream fitness industry, it's really especially evident that um, the kind of advice that, that is given to people to eat uh, very frequently and have like a bunch of protein and very low fat and carbs then I would say that that advice is actually doing a lot of harm to people because they don't get the whole picture, so to say that mm -hmm. they don't tell the whole people, they don't tell the people that what kind of uh, consequences it may have down the line in a few years or how it's going to affect their longevity in the grand scheme. They, they only get like the highlights and the most of the fitness gurus, they don't really know how does metabolism really work and what, what are the like side effects. Yeah, 100% agree, man. Like you only see the highlight reel and you only see the headlines. So people... They'll, they'll bounce around from one headline to the other and they'll try everything. And in reality, their body is making no headway at all. Um, and it's only screwing up their metabolism and, and even worse, their, their psychology towards being healthy in the first place. And then, then they just become, I don't know, it, it becomes a very unhealthy process. Like the, the quest for longevity and overall health and, and, you know, optimizing your performance should be an enjoyable process. But when you are constantly moving from one end of the spectrum to the other and listening to so many different, you know, points of wisdom that aren't really even wisdom it's uh it can certainly become a negative i'd love i'd love i mean i don't know to the extent of what the research shows on this but maybe you can shed some light on it with with fasting um similar to like sauna use for instance you know you're actually there's a period of time there where you're actually you know benefiting and Im improving the natural growth hormone um with regard to fasting is there any way to, I'm assuming this can be very highly individualized, but is there any way to, to know what the, the window of opportunity, so to speak, is in which, you know, you fast for X amount of time and you improve, you know, growth hormone by enough to, to warrant any temporary, you know, catabolic effects you'll have on muscle tissue at that point? Like, is there any kind of way to gauge that? I I don't I wouldn't I don't I wouldn't think that you can gauge it that at your home you would probably have to take like a test at a laboratory or something to see like how much growth hormone or how much autophagy you're actually you know going through at a particular moment, but uh, in general, uh, like I said, it's going to be very individualized and it's going to vary greatly between different diets and uh, varies greatly between like the metabolic status of the person at that particular moment. So, for mm -hmm. instance. Uh, most of the benefits of fasting, uh, such as like increased growth hormone and uh, autophagy and ketosis, they're mostly kind of mediated through this fuel sensing pathway of AMPK, which is uh, like a fuel sensor that mobilizes a lot of the energy backup stores, such as like stem cells or autophagy and such. So AMPK gets activated under uh, energy deprivation when your body gets depleted of certain nutrients. As uh, most the most important ones are uh, amino acids, which come from protein, and glucose, which from carbs. And uh, when when amino acids and uh, glucose are kind of low, uh, or, or if your like liver glycogen is also depleted, then uh, that's going to suppress the pathway of mTOR, and uh, in so doing, that's going to enable AMPK to do its work, so to say, and proliferate the um, the uh, the pathway that's going to help to uh, activate autophagy and so on so in general if you keep your if you if you are eating like a lower carb diet uh, then you you can't expect to get into autophagy faster and you get into like the therapeutic zone of fasting as well faster because you don't have like that much 
extra energy in the system, so your body is already somewhat uh, depleted. The ketogenic diet itself is already uh, activating AMPK to a certain extent because of like low glycogen and uh, low uh, glucose. So you you you're, you would probably be able to uh, gain most of the benefits of uh, fasting much faster on a keto diet because yeah you don't have like a bunch of extra fuel that you have to kind of burn through. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Um, you mentioned mTOR there. Can you can you flesh that out? Because I feel like a lot of people you know they hear mTOR, mammalian ta- targeted rapamycin, and you know half half the people are like, okay, that's that's great. That's what builds muscle. I gotta have that for muscle protein synthesis, and that's a good thing. And then the other half is like, you know, that that's that's a negative. It, it can cause cancer. Like there's just there's like a split right down the middle as far as what people's view of mTOR is. So. I'd love for you to kind of expand upon that. Well, yeah, mTOR is the anabolic switch of the body that makes everything grow, including like muscle tissue and nerve cells. And unfortunately, if there are like some cancer cells, then those things will probably grow as well. And mTOR suppression has been shown to like be able to fight cancer and tumors, as well as extend lifespan in some species. So, but the the idea of mTOR giving you cancer specifically is is kind of misleading because. Uh, if you don't have like any you know uh, preconditions or if you don't have any uh, reasons to be worried about it if you don't have any cancer already then and uh, then you probably don't have to worry about mTOR either because mTOR is still like essential for uh, life and it's it's really important for maintaining muscle mass as well as a cellular functioning so uh, most people they don't really have to worry about um, you know overactivating mTOR within a, like a reasonable dose of course if you do the standard bodybuilding diet with you know eating six times a day with high protein and high carbs then yeah probably you are overstimulating mTOR and that may have like some unwanted consequences on like accelerating aging and such uh, but yeah on on like a regular type of diet on especially on a keto diet where protein itself isn't like super high it's still moderate uh, in that case you don't really have to you know uh, worry about it and especially if you like do some form of intermittent fasting or daily time restricted eating then that's like a, an additional kind of benefit that you don't really have to worry about mTOR because fasting is like suppressing mTOR quite a lot and uh, that's like the exact opposite of anabolism and uh, when you would break a fast then you would actually want to consume something that spikes mTOR just so you would you know have like the muscle pre- muscle protein synthesis active and you would be able to maintain muscle and you know even build it so it's kind of like it's um like a good you know, parallel would be like mTOR is to a keto adapted athlete as insulin is to a carb dependent athlete almost with, with the, with regard to, you know, the, the spiking and the ebb and flow and how, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an extreme growth agent basically. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, the, the biggest, uh, yeah, mTOR is going to, uh, trigger muscle protein synthesis, which will help you to build muscle and you don't need specific, you don't need to be consuming like carbs to spike mTOR to build muscle, so to say. Insulin would be maybe like using it uh, to accelerate the spike faster and, uh, you know, additional like water weight retention and such. But uh, on, a, on a keto diet, mTOR itself, it, it, it may not, you know, uh, spike that high just because of like you don't spike insulin on a keto diet. Insulin, yeah, would be spiking the uh, mTOR and muscle protein synthesis higher and than, than on a low carb uh, diet because. Uh, on a low carb diet, you also have more glucagon, which will, uh, which is the counterpart to insulin. So the spike of in, the spike of eating protein uh, on a low carb diet, it, it's not going to be causing that big of a spike of mTOR, I would imagine. Well, so re- repeat that. I feel like that that's a a worthwhile point to stress. Uh, kind of comparing the the glucagon in a carb adapted versus keto adapted. Yeah, well, let's say you you eat pro like Ben Bickman has done quite a, a lot of research about it and he has shown that eating protein on a low carb keto diet it's not going to spike insulin almost at all and it's it's going to keep it, you know, somewhat moderate and it feels like that you haven't eaten anything at all based on like the insulin to glucagon ratio and uh, on a carb carb based diet eating protein with carbs is going to spike uh, insulin much higher. Like I would believe it's like twenty times higher than uh, than than regular diets or a low carb diet, and that's simply going to uh, kind of punctuate further the spike of mTOR as well, because insulin spikes mTOR and carbohydrates spike mTOR and protein spike mTOR. So the culmination of all those three factors will kind of shoot mTOR through the roof, 
whereas on a low-carb diet, on a keto diet, the insulin-glucagon ratio is lower, so you have more glucagon than insulin, and that is going to blunt the anabolic response, so to say. Your body's still going to uh, absorb the protein, but it's not going to over-exaggerate the spike of mTOR just, just because there isn't like a high amount of insulin around. So you may, I mean, would, would, do you feel it'd be safe to say that you could probably not build as much muscle as um, efficiently per se with a keto low carb diet based off of that alone as a you know carbohydrate based diet but in doing so you're also less likely to have some of the accompanying negatives that come with those extreme spikes yeah i would say yeah like uh, you know uh, there's a reason why the pro professional bodybuilders eat a bunch of carbs and proteins together and they do it like very frequently so they want to stimulate the mTOR pathway all the time so that would mm -hmm. be like the op most optimal for muscle growth and they're all of course they're taking like anabolic steroids as well which will you know emphasize it even further so uh, for nat for uh, regular people who don't really take steroids or who aren't uh, who don't have like the goal of becoming mr olympia then for them uh, they they they're probably not doing the keto diet just to build muscle so to say it's not the most optimal diet for muscle building although it's very possible and it's the quality gains uh, are much more sustainable in my opinion on a on a low carb diet you may uh, see the gains coming slower but it's still like it's still possible and it's really uh, much more kind of enjoyable as well as preferable from the longevity perspective to do it uh, that way yeah I, I totally agree and i've always said pretty much the same thing in that you know i don't think like me as an athlete, I don't think that I'm building muscle as quickly per se, being strictly keto adapted. But you know, when you look at the the life cycle or the uh, body composition cycle per se of an an athlete, you know, they'll have like a like a bodybuilder will have like a building phase, building season, and then a cutting season. And typically, you know, a carb dependent bodybuilder, they'll put on a little excess body fat or a lot excess body fat in the off season. They'll put on a lot of muscle. Then they'll cut that down and they put themselves in a state that more times, more often than not, you know, you know, excluding, excluding, you know, ones that are using some pretty enhanced uh, super supplements, so to speak, you know, you are going to lose, I mean, you're going to be in a catabolic state and you're going to lose some of that muscle tissue. So you build more muscle in the off season, you lose more muscle in the contest prep than I, I would think, um, you know, like myself as a keto adapted bodybuilder would, like I'm not building as much muscle per se in the off season, but I'm also not losing as much muscle. And then when you look at, you know, at the end of the day, when, when they step on stage, you know, who comes out ahead for it? Like, I don't think that they're maintaining enough muscle when they're cutting to have a net uh, positive over me as a keto adapted athlete, if that makes any sense. And then I can just basically stay keto and forego a lot of the negatives that come with the, the crazy, you know, carb dieting. So for me, it makes sense to, to just stay keto and maybe, you know, sacrifice some of that initial muscle gain at such a rate, but then all the other benefits that come with it just make it, you know, definitely worthwhile in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, on a carb-based diet, you, you do uh, fluctuate much more and uh, not only like the water weight, but also like in terms of you're more um, predisposed to losing muscle whenever you're not on the on the on point with your diet so to say that you actually the reason why mm -hmm. you have to be eating so frequently is to prevent catabolism on a high carb diet because your, your body isn't keto adapted and every time you are skipping meals or you're fasting then you're losing muscle just because your body doesn't know how to use its own body fat versus on the keto diet that's like the opposite you actually thrive in these moments where you're not eating just because you're going to be burning all your body fat and that's going to also protect against the muscle catabolism and uh, it's like really a good way of uh, you know getting the it's a good way of getting all of the positive side of uh, catabolism from fasting without suffering entirely from the negative side so to say you're not going to lose muscle when you're fasting and that's going to simply enable you to fast more often fast more longer and uh, yeah, it's, it's going to have like a more beneficial effect on longevity. Yeah. Plus, I mean, just looking at the lifestyle that comes along with it. I mean, you know, when, when, when I'm in a contest prep and I'm keto, I'm not eating, uh, you know, I mean, oftentimes I was eating one meal a day, you know, one or two meals a day tops. And I, I didn't feel like I was hungry, obviously, but I didn't feel like I was just, you know, totally incompetent. Like I don't have the crazy brain fog that a lot of competitors, uh, you know, suffer from when they're when their carbs are low, since that's my norm. Um, 
and and that alone is like another another huge factor that that makes dieting with a ketogenic approach uh, more sustainable. But it's it's a hard. I don't know. Like I feel like a lot of people, um, we live in a world in which they want that instant gratification, and it's it's a hard sell to encourage people to you know forego some initial muscle building, you know, on the front end to to by by following a ketogenic diet because they they're not thinking of okay all things equal when you step on stage you know and you know years from now who's healthier both internally and who and externally and that's that's where the issue lies i think i mean how do you convince a bodybuilder to not build as much muscle as possible in the moment you know like that's a hard that's a hard sell yeah well we're going to probably have to have like uh some sort of a full keto athlete becoming IFPB pro and going to the Olympia stage and you know <laughs> winning something so to get like some more attention so people get curious but yeah I think like it's it's definitely yeah. it's definitely something that uh, could be cycled as well and uh, if you are you know going through a certain phase in your life where you want to maximize your muscle growth especially if you're like young and full of natural testosterone then then you would maybe like you know okay I'm I'm kind of eating a little bit more carbs but um, it's not going to be like a big deal either, as long as you you know cycle it in a sense that you stay on a higher carb diet for a certain while, and then after a while you kind of settle down. You start to gradually lower your carbs, and you know you, it's, it, I, I don't think it's necessary to be staying on a really strict keto diet all the time to gain the benefits as well as uh, to avoid the, the side effects of a high carb diet. You don't even have to be going on a super high carb diet. With you know processed carbs and uh, and uh, cereal and uh, these chicken breasts, you can still say, stay even on a, like a somewhat of a you know on a, like a paleo type of diet and still be building plenty of muscle with it. And uh, then on some days, on rest days, for instance, you you go into like a keto template and you don't eat any carbs at all. So it's the, the kind of your your body will develop the metabolic flexibility as well. You just have to actually become keto adapted to a certain extent. For some periods of time, so that you can kind of build up the fat burning uh, machinery in your mitochondria, because most most the issues most of the issues come from uh, the body not being metabolically flexible. And on a on a standard diet, on people who have never fasted or never, who have never skipped a meal, their body is very inflexible, and uh, that's why they get the cravings and that's why they get the brain fog. So the the, the keto adaptation is like the fundamental cornerstone to becoming uh, metabolically flexible because you need to you know be able to tap into your body fat and not be like affected by it i totally agree with that i'm a little on the fence as to whether or not i think once you are metabolic, metabolically flexible and you are um you know benefiting from from keto that there is as much benefit from going back to the carbs like if you're if you're carb dependent and and you're suffering from all that comes with that or or whatever and you and you go keto and you, you kind of breach into metabolic flexibility there like that's a huge step in the right direction i think that needs to be everybody's goal um but like for me for instance i'm not sure that i would have enough benefit come from you know dipping back into carbs to make it more worth my while like once i'm keto adapted i don't necessarily need to be metabolically flexible like right. like my body like the machinery is there like if i was to be stranded on an island and there was no meat and i had to eat carbs like i would, I would function just fine but given the option i don't know that i would I don't know that I would have much of a benefit from introducing the carbs back. I mean, maybe I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's 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 like it's like some. It's not necessarily having to be, you know, like a full blown out uh, fluctuation. In a sense, you don't need to be. You, like I feel like a lot of the negative connotations about the cyclical keto diet come from people going really crazy with them and uh, eating like a bunch of cake and uh, chips and all those things and then feeling like crap the next day so it's not so it's not going to be supposed to work mm -hmm. uh, but i feel like you can still you know maintain that aspect of metabolic flexibility by maybe only having like a sweet potato as dinner on some days and uh, doing it maybe like a few times a week or maybe a few times a month you know depending on your goals and depending on how you feel like it's not necessary to go like really crazy with it and i do think that you know for the most time, like 80% of the time, you still want to stay on a low-carb keto template just because of like you will maintain better keto adaptation and you will probably feel better uh, mentally as well. So yeah, usually I only incorporate some metabolic flexibility with carbs just so I wouldn't you know, uh, get, get these uh, sort of uh, reactions where I get brain fog whenever I accidentally eat some potatoes in a soup at the restaurant or something, you know, that I don't want to lose this 
and this um, the ability to metabolize carbs properly, so to say, if like there are, there's definitely a lot of potential issues of uh, avoiding certain uh, nutrients like I don't know gluten or lectins for a certain period of time, and your body actually develops a you know, like a resistance towards them, and uh, just because of you, you, you previously you didn't have any problems, but you you read some books then that they're dangerous and you started avoiding them and then your body you know develops an autoimmune disorder whenever you next time you eat them so that's not like an ideal place to be you just you know in, incorporate some some aspects of them every once in a while just just to keep like the metabolic history alive and uh, do we do we not like affected by them in the long term yeah I, I can see that you know I can see um, if you're going to be in a situation or an environment where you 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 know you're going to have some carbs you know it would be advantageous for your body to to not you know unrecognize them uh, be unrecognizable you'd want them to be able to know what to do with them basically um right. like for i don't know I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on this like for me you know i i can like if i'm at a restaurant and there's you know some potatoes in the soup i could just like fast and not eat the soup um like if i if i'm totally cool and and fine with not ever having a bolus of carbs again in my life which, which i am like, am I missing out on anything? Like, do you think that I'm I'm in an, in an inherent disadvantage? Um, because I mean, I think you know we live in a day and age where, you know, there's enough food right. in abundance that I mean, I could always pick what to eat. I mean, I could see where it'd be at a disadvantage if you know, for I was like held at gunpoint and told to eat a bunch of you know carbs. Um, but if that's not the case, like, do you think I'm missing out by not having the carbs? Uh, no, I don't think so. Like, not really. Like, yeah, if you were to be you know, uh, if you were if you were to be able to go through a life for the rest of a life on the same diet that you're doing right now, then that would be like perfectly fine in a sense. Your body would be like really efficient at 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 running ketones and adapted to that. And the same for like the carnivore diet as well. Like if you were to be eating the same the same meat and uh, you know the same the same carnivore diet all the time for the rest of life and not consume any plants then that will be like, I would imagine it's okay. It's just that, yeah, like uh, if you were to accidentally eat something out of the ordinary, something that's not normal to your diet, then you would probably, you know, experience some of the negative side effects, like some lethargy or brain fog, or even some like serious gut orders or something. So yeah, it's, it's again, yeah, like some prefer preference preference side. I, like I myself wouldn't want to become, I, I myself wouldn't want to corner myself into like uh, that that position. I would want to be like a more flexible and uh, be able to like tolerate some random randomness. Like I'm not going to be ordering, you know, potato soup at a restaurant yeah, yeah, <laughs> by yeah. any means or not. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be or deliberately ordering cake, uh, but I still want my body to be you know ready for it whenever it accidentally comes or whenever the situation you know rises do you think they're like you know there's no way to really know this there's no way that i can think of to test because there's no long-term studies to this degree but i feel like being strictly keto adapted as i have for as long as i have you know four or five years now it's improved the machinery that i have at you know just day-to-day -day function but also you know from a performance athlete's perspective you know building muscle mm -hmm. so like if I'm not introducing carbs, I don't have that as a variable in my nutrition, then, you know, I'm still subjecting my body to the stimulus of training and, you know, moving heavy things and, and having the form and all that stuff that comes with being a bodybuilder. I feel like since I haven't introduced carbs in the interim, you know, over the course of the past four or five years, my body's machinery has improved to the point that I'm not even really missing out. Like my new norm has become the ketogenic diet and I'm able to build muscle just as effectively, if not more so than you know, I was in years prior because I've just like really just streamlined the operation. Um, but again, I don't know how there'd be any way to quantify that. Like it would be just such a, there's just too many variables at play to be able to test that. But I do think there's a, a an inherent advantage to, you know, being strictly adapted long-term, just as there's an inherent advantage to being metabolically flexible, like depending on what your goals are, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, there can be an argument for an advantage with everything. Um, but what do you think to the terms of just being strictly adapted for years on end? Well, I do think, yeah, like that's it's, it's especially true, yeah, that if you do it long term, then your body will adapt to it very efficiently, especially like different tissues and organs like the brain, the mitochondria, and even muscles, so to say, that um, the things that you would maybe want to, the, the things you could kind of measure or quantify would be uh, rates of glycogen resynthesis, especially with things like um, you know f eating fats and such. So on a keto diet, your main fuel source is fats and ketones. 
So they would still uh, kind of replicate uh, the the idea that you're eating glucose almost. So mm-hmm. I, I would I would suggest that yeah, like the the ketones and the fats, they are the same as carbs on a on a carb adapted athlete. And uh, the the only difference might be that uh, the kind of rates of glycogen presynthesis would still be somewhat limited by the procedure of uh, or the by the rates of gluconeogenesis, so to say. So in order to store glycogen on a keto diet, then you still need to convert those fats into glucose through gluconeogenesis. Mm-hmm. So uh, you would probably simply be doing it much faster and much more efficiently than someone else. So a carb-adapted carb athlete, they probably don't convert any fat into glycogen uh, at least like in reasonable amounts uh, but uh, i would say yeah you probably like resynthesize glycogen faster with fats and as well as like you're, you're probably able to trigger muscle protein synthesis uh either better or either you would probably trigger it you know more efficiently you don't, you don't need that much insulin or you don't need that much uh, protein to trigger muscle protein synthesis just because you let like, the ketones substitute a lot of the energy requirements especially for the brain and uh, other vital organs so yeah, you def- definitely like there is a lot of um, you know adaptation that will make running on ketones much more efficient, especially if you do it like over the course of uh, many years. And also, there's I-, I believe there was definitely like some epigenetic change as well, just mm-hmm. because of running on ketones. Like there is definitely like a genetic difference between the Inuit as well as you know the the Maasai or someone from uh, some some equatorial tropical forest, so to say. They're running on different fuel sources, and their genetic machinery is also different and uh, yeah i would suggest that the, the keto diet itself is like a, almost like an epigenetic change <laughs> if you do it like a long term uh, maybe like four years wouldn't be like enough to have like some real serious epigenetic changes but maybe like a few decades <laughs> then uh, you would probably your children would also be probably more keto adapted if you were to do it uh, for like a longer period of time i would i would imagine <laughs> yeah yeah no this this is fascinating because like you know epigenetics is i think really starting to gain in uh, it's starting to become more in the public eye how you know what you do can legitimately impact your, your your direct offspring you know like that's a interesting phenomenon um because it's it's not like evolution you know it takes hundreds of thousands of years it's like pretty much within this, this span of a lifetime um so you know on that it's, it's pretty crazy yeah that you know uh, all that's one of the reasons why you would want to pay more attention to your biomarkers and the diet and exercise and such because like a lot of children are already already uh you know, uh, uh, being born with pre-diabetes or something, just because mm-hmm. their parents are eating so many carbs and sugars, and that the, the baby food is also like full of fructose and all other stuff. So, yeah, there is definitely something to like. You have to pay attention to it uh, right now because everything you do right now is going to have uh, like a quantitative effect in the future, especially your offspring and your genes. Yeah, and and see to. I mean, I'm I'm a very strongly in the camp of strict keto, but on that note, I mean, maybe I'm doing my future kids a disservice by being so strictly adapted because they may not be as metabolically flexible right out the gates. I mean, you know, you never know. It's kind of like just a, you know, like self-experimentation. And yeah, like, although you may be wanting, you may be willing to go on a keto diet for the rest of your life, your children may not be able to, so to say, <laughs> or who knows, like, or the, the, the environment in the world is going to change maybe as well. So who knows, like, it's a, it's a pretty interesting topic. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is for sure. And I think a lot of people, they, they don't, recognize that that what they're doing today can have such a profound impact on I, I think it was a uh, Anthony Jay I was talking to Dr. Anthony Jay but he's like epigenetics can have an impact on not only you but four generations past you so like your grandkids kids can be impacted by the decisions you're making today you know compounded over time obviously but and that's just a, a crazy phenomenon like people need to stop and think about that and you know it's it's our responsibility to freaking humanity to do what we know to be the best thing for us, you know, based off the information that we have at hand. So, I mean, to, to go against that and to just be blatantly lazy towards, you know, self-improvement is just a disservice to <laughs> everybody. Yeah, like a, a few months ago, I got I, I did like a Q&A on my own podcast and uh, one of the questions was like, do I believe in an afterlife? And uh, I answered it in a way, something along the lines that uh, you shouldn't focus on trying to reduce your own suffering when you're dead, so to say, you would want to focus on how can I reduce the suffering of those who are left behind me, especially like my my children and my family members. So mm-hmm. yeah, the I would have to I would have to take care of myself and my genes. So I would so so I wouldn't give birth to a child who is going to have like some for, some form of disease just because I didn't take care of myself. 
So yeah, you, you shouldn't focus on how can I reduce my suffering in the afterlife? You should focus on how can I reduce the suffering of those who are going to come after me and uh, my offspring, so to say, and my genes. I really, really like that. I've never heard it put that way, but I 100% agree. And I think, you know, like looking at uh, like conservation, for instance, you know, like actively taking measures to, you know, make sure that the the wildlife habitat, you know, the natural habitat that we have on this planet now, you know, stays intact and not only, you know, maintains, but improves. And I feel like there's, there's such a, a mindset around just get it while you can, so to speak, right now. And it's honestly just disgust me because so many people just are so greedy and selfish in, you know, benefiting themselves as much as they can while they can in the moment. And they have no thought whatsoever to generations, you know, after them. And it's it's our responsibility. Like if we're if we have the blessing to be put on this earth, like if we I mean the chances of being alive are like one gazillion. I don't know what the statistics are, but if you're on this earth, you're listening to this podcast and you feel like the world owes you anything, then you're screwed up in the head. Like you gotta you gotta do like your responsibility on this planet is to leave it better than you found it, period. Yeah, this is, there is a lot of a lot of entitlement that okay, I deserve to have a six pack or I deserve to be rich or something. I deserve to get social validation or such. Why why isn't anyone paying attention to me then? Yeah, it's really something to, it's, it's like somewhat immature in the sense that you don't realize, yeah, how fortunate you really are. And like, there's so many things to be grateful for. Yeah, I completely agree, man. Completely agree. Um, I, I wanted to pick your, your brain on uh, saunas. I, I kind of mentioned them earlier, but I know you've you know, experiment with hot and cold therapy. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the red light saunas on our last podcast, but I'm on the fence. I'm, pro- I'm not on the fence. Like I'm probably going to pull a trigger on buying a sauna, but I don't know what, which type of sauna. I don't know the, cause I mean, not all saunas are created equal, kind of like most things in life. Um, so kind of dive into that and just let me, let me pick your brain and just learn about what I should do going forward with the saunas. Well, I think like the best sauna is uh, like a regular Finnish sauna with like a wooden stove and uh, the real rocks and and so that will be like a really you can get the temperature much higher than in an infrared sauna and you do like accumulate it's like also like you know natural it, it doesn't have any EMF or something that so like, like, there are probably some ways of uh, even building some uh, Finnish saunas with an electrical uh, fire furnace uh, that would you know be usable even in an apartment. So uh, that would be like my my go to go to uh, thing that I would aim for. But at the same time, using like a regular infrared sauna is also okay as an alternative. It's it's not like the best one in my opinion, but uh, it's it still works. And I also have I have both of them. So uh, on a regular on a daily basis, I'm using like the infrared sauna just. Just to uh, just to like not spend that much time like, like heating up the regular sauna and you know f- firing, building up the fire and so on. So uh, the infrared sauna is mo- much more convenient and quicker in in this sense. Uh, but uh, in general, yeah, if you were to take an infrared sauna, then you would also have to get something that is like lower in EMF because uh, it's not like worth it to sit in the infrared sauna if you're gonna be radiated by these uh, non-native EMF and, uh, and and other wavelengths. So yeah. So, so you have a sauna in which you're you're making a fire and like like legit hardcore old school sauna. Yeah, yeah, like the regular Finnish sauna. Yeah, I have that one, and uh, it's it's the best one just because like it's very uh, natural and uh, it's it's also like more. I I do experience that in the regular sauna you uh, build more heat, uh, the temperature is higher, and at the same time you also get like the the sweating is also easier. You start to sweat easier and you feel somewhat better. Huh. So, so what, what about near infrared? Like I hear, I see that term used pretty broadly in like the sauna world, near infrared sauna. What does that mean? Uh, well, it's uh, basically mean that uh, the uh, wavelength is uh, somewhat different and it's going to penetrate less of the skin, I would imagine. Uh, not, su- not sure like what's the huge like difference between them um, because most of the saunas actually have uh, both, both uh, wavelengths. Uh, but yeah, I would imagine that the near infrared sauna is simply it doesn't penetrate the skin that deeply. It's like uh, on the surface level, and uh, probably only stimulates stimulates only like the sweat glands as well as uh, you know the skin and the collagen in there. But the uh, uh, regular infrared sauna 
though that will be probably penetrating uh, deeper into the like the deeper tissues of the of the body and and you want it so with regard to the wavelengths like there's pros and cons to having that wavelength penetration right yeah that there's probably some uh like the uh let's say the therapeutic well, most of the research is done on uh, on the wavelength between like uh, uh, uh maybe like 600 and uh, 780 nanometers somewhere somewhere there so uh, i'm not sure like yeah, if 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 most of the saunas are somewhere between there as well i would i would say then most of the research is also done in that uh, area gotcha gotcha so if if somebody was to to you know be compelled to go buy or build a sauna uh you know after listening to this like i am <laughs> what would you mm-hmm. what would you recommend like is there a particular brand or like like what 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 do i need to do uh i've heard well i haven't like uh tried all of the brands in uh, north america and uh, i'm not sure like which ones are the best ones but yeah you probably look for something that uh has like a lowest emf as possible and uh also like that that in on their website that they that they do like have some specific research done on their on their particular brand that will be like a good good sign to look for from a sauna and and, and can you describe the the emf a little bit more like what is that exactly well uh the emf is like electromagnetic frequencies and uh it's, it's simply gonna disrupt some of your own body's electromagnetic field in a way and uh like i haven't researched it that deeply but i've i've heard you know that it is connected to some lower testosterone and sleep problems and and so on so you get like the emf all around you on a daily basis like from the wi-fi router from cell phone uh, towers and your your own cell phone and so on so you you probably don't want to you know uh be exposed to that much emf all the time and you don't you want to kind of limit it to a certain point gotcha and it's coming from the bulbs in the saunas specifically yeah yeah and in the infrared sauna yeah but yeah if you have if you have like some sauna that is low emf then uh that's not going to be like a huge issue i would imagine gotcha gotcha what about um the sauna use paired with like cold therapy you know because i've you know, it's interesting, man. I've done research and some people are like, you know, you're getting like 99% of the benefits from the, you know, hot therapy alone with the saunas and it kind of negates the, like the, the cold plunges and the ice baths and whatnot. But wh- where do you stand on that whole topic? I actually think that, you know, using both of them, uh, you, the hot and cold will uh, get you more of the benefits because uh, you're at the same, well, like the benefits of the, of the hot, of the heat, are that you're gonna raise growth hormone and uh, promote recovery and reduce inflammation, as well as uh, stimulate the lymphatic system, you know, flush out some of the toxins and so on. Uh, while while simultaneously, it's also like feels like a cardio workout to a certain extent. It's gonna increase your heart rate and uh, promote blood flow. So uh, when you do get to the cold, the cold is also uh, reducing inflammation and activates brown fat and uh, and uh, and such. So uh, if you combine them together, then you're kind of simultaneously training your uh, nervous system as well to jump back and forth between like the parasympathetic state and uh, sympathetic state. And uh, you kind of get a, like a, it feels much more effective. And I would say that yeah, there has there has been like a lot of studies done uh, or research done that look specifically at what's the benefits of doing them both together. But you do get like an emphasized lymphatic drainage especially like an increased blood flow as well so i, w- I would say that it's it's uh, somewhat like a better better to do them uh, together so with with you you know knowing this as you do and then kind of doing all the separate experimentation that you have how do you structure your day as it relates to you know meal timing hot and cold therapy as it relates to training like when you're mm-hmm. going throughout the course of a day like when do you when do you eat um, you know, based off of training schedule, and just kind of walk me through that. Well, uh, I, I myself uh, practice definitely daily time restricted eating and intermittent fasting. So usually, uh, on a regular basis, on like maintenance modes, I'm eating only once a day and consuming my food within maybe two to three hours, something along the lines of that. It's not like a one meal, but it's simply like a like a expanded meal over the course of several hours. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the daytime, I'm simply yeah drinking only water, 
some uh, black coffee and some teas, something like that to um, keep myself going as well as uh, promote some of the benefits of the fast, like increased fat mobilization and some autophagy as well. So uh, w usually my, uh, my workouts is also around the afternoon where I'm usually working out in a fasted state, but on some, occasion, on some occasions I also may take like uh, some protein powder just uh, during the workout to uh, get some protein in my system and uh, to have like an additional anti-catabolic effect during the workout. Uh, but if I'm, if I'm not working out, then I'm usually eating only once a day and uh, no, no uh, additional supplements or anything like that during the day. And my meals are primarily, they are uh, still like low-carb keto and uh, still uh, higher in protein, so to say that I still want to get adequate amounts of protein uh, to to uh, to uh, counterbalance the fasting side of the day to not go like into the catabolic mode, so to say, because if you start to restrict your protein on top of fasting uh, and on top of training as well, then you you probably won't get like the optimal results in terms of uh, muscle maintenance and the muscle growth even. So uh, yeah, I I tend to eat uh, primarily like a lot of eggs, which are good for triggering mTOR and triggering muscle protein synthesis because of uh, they have a lot of leucine. And next to the eggs, I still have like some meat and I still eat like vegetables and fermented foods like sauerkraut and so on. So uh, that's like a good standard kind of dinner that I have, like steak, some eggs and uh, some vegetables. With you having such an extended fasting period, do you think it'd be advantageous to have like any you know, like amino acids like leucine, um, like even when you're training rather than having the protein powder, like just having like a branch chain amino supplement, you think that would be enough to negate any negative catabolic effects uh, i would think that the regular protein powder would be better because you you get you still get like the amino acids from the protein powder but you still uh, but you also get like the building blocks the protein actual itself so that would be better just taking the branch chain amino acids uh, although they may you know provide some uh, bcas and some anti-catabolic effects they, they won't be able to you know you may like accidentally shift yourself from like into a fit state and just because you're taking only BCAs without the protein, then you may like go into catabolic mode just because of that. Whereas if you take like the regular protein, then you get both the BCAs as well as the actual building blocks of protein. So you, you're not going to sacrifice any additional muscle loss just because of that. What, uh, what kind of protein do you use? Like, a, like just a whey isolate or something? No, I, I don't really like like the generic uh, protein powders because like they have, you know, these other filler agents and also like the artificial sweeteners, especially things like uh, sucralose or uh, or the or uh, some something like that. So uh, I I use um, like a like a regular protein powder without any sweeteners uh, that has like other adaptogenic uh, herbs and spices like maca and uh, cacao and so on. So it's like a natural protein powder without without the sweeteners huh. and wh where do you get that uh it's a brand from the uk it's called the primal alchemy and uh, they have like primal a alchemy. really 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 awesome like a superfood protein powder like the, the, some cacao uh, maca, maca ginger and yeah, other other cool stuff when when we talked i guess it's been well, i don't know probably about a year year and a half since you were on the podcast last um have you noticed the ketogenic diet kind of gaining in popularity over there where you're at or no Mm, yeah, well, there has been like some increase in the popularity of keto and uh, fasting and, and you know, like general biohacking as well. Part of it have, may have to do with like the we organized also like the Biohacker Summit a conference in uh, my home or home city Tallinn, and uh, there was like plenty of people there, and I think that helped with the popularity. But yeah, I think simply keto is becoming so popular across the entire world. So uh, most countries still like some people who are interested in improving their health and optimizing their nutrition, then they are have heard at least they've heard about it. And uh, they maybe like have like a basic understanding of what it's about. Yeah, that, that's very cool. man. it's cool to see it spreading, you know, beyond just the states here where I'm at, but just, you know, globally. Um, talk about your book, man, I want to give you some time to flesh that out, man. I saw the that book is no joke. It's it's a pretty pretty detailed for sure. So kind of give the audience listeners some insight into where the motivation to write that came from and what all it entails. Uh, yeah. So my new book is called uh, Metabolic Autophagy, and uh, it is it talks about a lot of the ways that uh, we talked about in this uh, podcast already of how do you optimize both fasting and resistance training for longevity and performance. So the the goal is to 
still be able to you know build muscle and uh, promote your longevity in so doing and whilst and not suffering from uh, some of the negative side effects of you know over, overly stimulating game tour all the time and not suffering from the side effects of doing fasting and still kind of bridging the gap between both ends of the spectrum and you know getting getting the best of both worlds whether that be for muscle maintenance and muscle growth or uh, just general uh, well-being and health gotcha gotcha and what made you i mean you've written books in the in the past uh prior but what what kind of what what motivated you to to hinge off and write this and was it like any just new compelling research or just simply you know the longer you've gone doing this the more you've learned and you just wanted to put that information out there uh as well i think like one of the biggest reasons i wrote it is to yeah refute some of the misconceptions in the like a low carb community about protein and mTOR and fasting and so on so to simply yeah to show uh, or to talk about the science of and how to actually how, how it is possible to do it in an optimal way and uh, yeah simply like teaching the context of the situation as well because uh, everything that we talked about today they're all very context dependent and they're required to actually know like what's the particular situation of the individual and uh, what are their goals and what are their metabolic conditions and so on so the book so the book itself not only teaches you like what what would be like the optimal way of doing it but also teaches you the context side of uh, how can I apply the same principles into whatever kind of situation I may come across and how do I actually, you know, uh, understand how the metabolism works and uh, how can I use those things, same principles in these different situations. Yeah, I've got to tip my hat to you on that one, man. There's there's so much controversy within like the, the low carb space right now and a lot of it is simply due to people lacking the context. Um, so, you know, the, the cool thing about you, like the reason I love talking to you is just because you, you're smart enough and open-minded enough and reasonable enough to understand that there often is a shade of gray and everything's not black and white. You have to look at it, you know, full circle. So, you know, congrats to you for having the foresight to write about it and hopefully open other people's eyes as well, because it's just kind of pathetic to see people get so just frustrated and, and immature about things that they don't even totally grasp, you know? Right. Yeah. It's like the context is where all the, you know, magic he lies uh, but people simply don't want to learn about the context and they simply want to get like the easy answers and again it goes back to like the immediate gratification of yeah what's what works for me right now and they don't really know that it's very context dependent that's very complex the human body is like one of the most complex things in the universe so <laughs> it's like you, you, yeah. you shouldn't expect to get an easy answer in in writing the book and in all the research that you that you did to you know, write it. What what was something that surprised you? What what did you learn that you weren't expecting? Mm, maybe like uh, things that I still was um, you know amazed about was like the controversy about uh, saturated fats as well as like meat and such, and uh, that they're all the cause of uh, all of the diseases in the modern world. Whereas in reality, when you actually go into the science and look at the research, then you see that okay, it's not the actual case, and uh, most of it has to do with misinterpreting the the science and uh, even on a mechanistical level cholesterol as well as uh, meat they they don't like have like a negative effect on the body in in a, like a healthy context so to say in 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 a, in a proper context and in the context where it's not combined with you know the all the other processed foods of the western uh, western diet yeah that that's um that's a very good point man like i look at you know a lot of the, the information that's put out there today and it's totally in the face of and not not so much research, but just the the wisdom that people are putting out there, the government's putting out there today, is just so counter to what all the research is showing. And you know, any five minute Google search could pull up actual science that dispels all these myths. But it just really illustrates how slow moving this dietary nutritional ship is, because it's like such a behemoth of you know information that it's it's hard to turn. Uh, you know, overnight. And it's, it's unfortunate because so many people are just going to be late to the party and not being taken advantage of the 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 true and accurate information until, you know, many, many years after it's come out. But you know, I think, I think you know, people like you writing the books that you are, you know, the podcast, all that stuff is pretty much doing everything we can to educate people on where to start looking for accurate information. Yeah, but it is true. Like uh, a lot of different biases as well as different yeah, conflicting conflicting interests those all of those things kind of shape the public opinion or the the dietary guidelines of uh, of, of every, every 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 country yes for sure um 
one more question for you, Sam. What what are you what are you doing right now? What are you, what are you experimenting on right now that is is has got your excitement? Like, is there anything specific that you're trying to, you know, figure out and find the answer to, uh, you know, with yourself or keto or whatever? Really, what what are you what are you diving into right now? Um, well, I think uh, at the moment I've been doing a lot of different uh, uh, kind of workouts like every day almost uh, doing full body workouts every day to us in some shape or form but uh, not like overstimulating my nervous system so uh, this kind of like in incorporating more frequency into my wor uh, workout week uh, but still uh, looking at okay how can i use these different ways of uh, progressing in strength and muscle growth so yeah usually that's my at the moment like the my workout focus for for at the moment doing full body workouts uh, with my own body for like calisthenics type workouts uh, every day and uh, seeing how how I respond. What have you what have you noticed so far with the increased frequency? It's uh, it feels you know really um, effective in a sense that you have like a elevated um, the the elevated uh, protein synthesis signal is gonna remain elevated for longer. And you kind of tend to recover faster from the workouts as well, just because you do it so frequently. The only caveat is that you don't necessarily want to, you know, uh, hit failure and you don't want to overdo it because it's going to simply uh, jeopardize recovery. But in general, I feel like it's been, it's been pretty good so far. And the, the uh, aspect of getting stronger is definitely faster in terms of that you, you practice the movements more frequently and uh, you kind of, uh, tech, you, you send this signal to your nervous system to adapt more frequently as well. So you just have to make sure that you don't overdo it. <laughs> is it hard to to pull back on the reins and, and not go to failure if you're wanting to push yourself? I do like hit maybe, you know, 90% of my failure every once in a while. But uh, usually I, I don't like uh, make it a mandatory thing, so to say. That I'm not going to be, okay, this is my only workout for the week. So I have to really crush it. So that's that's like not the mindset. Because I know that okay, I'm gonna still yeah. have some time to do it again the next day or the following day. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good point, man. I've, I've been kind of experimenting with my training as well, and it's it's interesting because the body responds to you know all these different stimulus you subject it to in in some in very different ways. Um, and I've always kind of gravitated towards like the traditional you know bro split, so to speak, where you're you have one specific muscle group that you're training that day typically only train that one body part once a week. And then in that one session, you just, you know, hit it hard for two and a half hours sometimes. And you just like go to absolute failure on everything, you know, just go to the extreme. And then you don't do that again until the next week. Yeah. Now I've been kind of changing it up. So I'm, I'm having a more like a higher frequency style training, not every day like you, but like I'll train the same muscle uh, directly at least twice a week and then indirectly, you know, three or four times a week. Um, but in doing that, it's like, you know, you're, you, you're chipping away at it bit by bit and it just makes the whole thing more sustainable. So like from a psychological perspective, it's, it's, you know, the, the final outcome, the end outcome, I think will be better because of this. Plus I'm, I'm at less risk for injury, which is also a huge win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is like uh, it, it, I myself don't like don't uh, make it like the, a do or die thing in the sense that if I do feel that okay I'm a bit sore today then I I won't be having like a heavy workout but I still like maybe move myself around a little bit. Uh, just out of this, I'm, I'm I keep having all these questions I keep bringing up. But do you do you have like an O ring or do you track your HRV at all and do you base any of your training off of that? Yeah, I do have the O ring and. Uh, and I do pay some attention to the HRV and heart rate, heart rate. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a good indicator of actually, you know, looking at something, what kind of a state your nervous system is in. But in most cases, you can also feel uh, a little bit like, okay, I'm actually feeling sore, or I'm feeling like I have some sort of a cold or something. So in that case, I'm not gonna be, you know, ignoring the data, and I'm not gonna ignore my uh, intuition either. So uh, yeah, but in most cases. If the, the deviations between like heart rate variability and such they do fluctuate a little bit, so uh, I may pay t pay attention to it a little bit, but uh, most the, the first kind of focus would be still on like how do I actually feel in my body and uh, how do my muscles feel? Yeah, I totally agree, man. There's been several times where like I'll look at my aura ring that day and it'll say that I should take a rest day, but then I'll just get mad that it tells me to take a rest day, so I'll go work out and I'll have like a better workout mm -hmm. than 
had I taken a rest day or had then had I, you know, seen a good reading, um, which maybe not, not a good thing. Maybe, you know, that compounding over time is going to lead to injury. But some people get too tied into what some outside factor is telling them as opposed to what they're actually feeling. Being in tune with your body and recognizing that is, is I think, a paramount importance. And then any, any wearable, any technology, any additive is just simply supplemental to what you should be doing inherently, you know, instinctively anyways. Mm. Yeah, so true. People are dis- distant from their nature. Uh, but at the same time, that technology itself can bridge the gap and uh, get you back closer to your nature by if you use it the right way and you don't become like yeah. uh, controlled by it. Very good point. Well, shoot, man, I could sit here and talk to you all day, but <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. Where can people go to find out more about you and, and, and get the book? Uh, yeah, well, on all the social media platforms, I'm uh, Seam Lund, and uh, the book is Metabolic Autophagy on Amazon. So it's also written by Seam Lund. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Sim, again, man, always a pleasure. Uh, definitely keep in touch. I'm always curious to hear what, what you're working on and what you're discovering. So let me know if there's anything I could do and definitely keep in touch, man, because I'm, like I said, I always am keen to know what you've discovered. Yeah, yeah same touch. Take care, bud.